My name is Nathan Turkey, and I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met yet, um, please stick around a little bit after the service. Would love the opportunity to get to meet you if, if possible. Um, on Sunday mornings, if, if you're a guest this morning, or just to remind you, um, as we do every week, we're going through uh, this, uh, this semester, we're going through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, um, on Sunday mornings. And so we've kind of just been taking one section of verses at a time, working our way through it, and, uh, and we come to a very interesting uh, passage this morning, which is in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, which deals with spiritual warfare. Um, so, the devil, uh, his many schemes, uh, an unseen spiritual battle, uh, dark, ominous, personal evil forces. It should be a very interesting uh, discussion for us this morning, uh, one that I'm glad you're, you're here for. Um, so let me uh, read for us Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Um, they're printed in your bulletin, or you can turn there in your Bible. Um, but let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now in prayer, and then we'll talk about these verses. Heavenly Father, we pray um, that you would uh, pour out your spirit. That you would pour out your spirit in order that we would understand your word this morning um, in a place that is often very difficult to understand, language that's difficult, a topic that's difficult for us to get our minds around. Um, And we pray not only that we would be understanding, but that by your Spirit you would take your word and you would apply it to all of us, that you would show up and meet us right where we are, That you would meet us in our joy and happiness, but also in our sorrow, in our hurt, in our confusion, in our questions. Um, Father, meet us wherever we are and reveal to us your son Jesus in order that we might be reminded of all he has done for us. um, And how it can be true that sinners such as us... um, might be more broken than we could ever really understand, but also far more loved and accepted and delighted in because of Jesus than really we could have ever dared to dream was possible. So take us to this good news, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Some of you, I think, are probably familiar with an old book by C.S. Lewis called 
the screw tape letters. Um, and if you aren't, it's a short little book. It's actually a pretty humorous uh, and funny book. Uh, it's a fictional account of a correspondence between a lesser demon uh, named Wormwood and his demon mentor, his uncle Screwtape. And in it, Screwtape gives instructions to Wormwood on how he is to handle his patient, uh, this young believer, um, and how he is to treat him with a variety of schemes to cause him to doubt his salvation or to fall into temptation. Um, It's a really interesting read. It's a very short book. Um, But in the introduction to this fictional account, Lewis made a few comments about uh, spiritual warfare. And one of the things he wrote was this. He wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which humanity can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And then he writes, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. Two errors. We either disbelieve in the existence of spiritual beings, um, what Lewis called a materialist, uh, or he says we're overly fascinated uh, by them and we attribute way too much to them. We're looking for them behind every rock and every bush, uh, what Lewis called a magician. And I think we gravitate to one of these extremes or or the other because we tend to bristle against complexity in our view of the world. Um, See, on, on the one hand, you might be entirely dismissive of the spiritual world, embracing what you consider to be a secular view of the world. Uh, Or, on the other hand, you might be entirely dismissive of human responsibility, and it's easier and simple for you to just attribute everything to a spiritual world. But Paul and the Bible, they invite us into a complex, unique, nuanced view of the world, a complex, robust, and fuller view of the world, because the Bible rejects both the materialist and the magician, right? And if you're still with me at this point, that's what I want us to consider today and this morning, how the Bible threads the needle in this discussion of spiritual warfare. I want us to see how God is calling us to embrace and to engage in God's reality, in a reality that is far richer more nuanced, and more complex than we usually give it credit. So there are three things that I really want us to talk about in these four verses as we think about spiritual warfare this morning. So first I want us to see that we face a terrible enemy, and then I want us to notice that this enemy uses, we're told, a variety of schemes. And then finally I want us to see that Paul tells us about a safe place for us to stand. A terrible enemy, a variety of schemes, and a safe place to stand. All right, first, a terrible enemy. The language here in this passage that we read, it really gets across 
how terrible our enemy is. So we're talking about the devil, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. Paul is talking about ever-present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. But, and I want you to notice something important. What does a complex, nuanced view of the world look like? One that's balanced, right? One that's not dismissive. Paul wrote in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And listen, I want you to understand this. He's not saying there's no such thing as flesh and blood evil. That there's no such thing as evil men or women or evil practices or evil systems or evil governments. In other words, this isn't a denial. It's not a denial of real felt injustice, abuse, oppression, wickedness, or violence at work in the world. Paul willingly acknowledged that all over the place, even and especially in this letter to the Ephesians. But you see, he's saying it's more complex than just that. right? One scholar says Paul is defining a struggle that is supra flesh and blood. In other words, he's saying this spiritual conflict, our terrible enemy lies above, behind, and underneath flesh and blood evil at work in the world, right? So a writer I've found really helpful in this subject is a woman named Marva Dawn. Um, I think she very thoughtfully and helpfully pulls together much of what the Bible says about spiritual warfare, and she talks about how these spiritual powers, these dark forces of evil, how they are both external and at the same time connected to human and social realities. So we should think about it like this. Sex is never just sex, and money is never just money. And political power is never just power. right? Take money, for example. There's a reason Jesus said things like, you cannot serve both God and money. right? According to Jesus, money is never just money. right? It's also a power. And here's how you see it worked out in your life, at least how I've seen it work out in my life. You work hard to become a careful, wise steward of your finances. And that's awesome. You should do that. But then you begin to notice something at work. As soon as you become a good steward of your money, it begins to exert a power and an influence in your life. And it's hard to be generous. And you realize how hard it is to give up perceived control in your life. There's an unseen power at work. It's external and connected to the tangible realities of your life. And they are warring with us all the time. Now listen, at the same time, Paul was saying this evil isn't something abstract or completely mystical. He was saying our terrible enemy is also personal. We can't get all into it this morning, but the Bible says that both men and angels fell. And that there is a real personal devil and real personal forces of evil that are described in verse 12. 
The devil and his legions of fallen angels, they are powerful personal forces of evil and darkness. And they are personally opposed to God and to his people. You and I, if we are Christians, Paul is trying to convince us. We have a real, personal, and terrible enemy. Now, now I want you to think about something about this letter that Paul is writing to his friends. This is a heck of a way to end a letter to a bunch of your friends. Right, because that's what this is. It's a letter. And he wrote, finally, lastly, I have one more thing to tell you about in this letter. And I want you to think through this letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote about the wonderful soaring heights of God's marvelous and wondrous grace. I mean, that's where this whole book began, how God is bringing reconciliation to all life. And Paul painted these glorious pictures throughout this letter of Ephesians of unity and life and growth in the church. Um, Poet Samuel uh, Taylor Coleridge called Ephesians the divinest composition of man. William Barclay called it the queen of all the epistles. Right? Others have described this book as pure music, as doctrine set to music, as the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Ephesians, almost like none other of Paul's writings, lifts us up to see the matchless beauty of Jesus and his work of redemption. But now this is where Paul ends his work. From soaring heights... To deep, deep darkness, right? From beauty to, he's describing a blood-soaked battlefield that we're engaged in. You know what Paul is doing for his friends? He's saying, I don't want you to be a fool, right? I don't want you caught unaware. Open your eyes to what's really going on, he's saying. This is no game. You have a real, personal, terrible enemy A real conflict is being waged right now at this very moment. That word wrestle in verse 12, it's a word that means toe-to-toe or hand-to-hand combat, right? A fight so close, he's describing. You can feel your opponent's breath. You can smell the sweat and hear the grunts and the groans. He's saying, open your eyes to your terrible enemy, I'm sorry, but I apologize on the front end. I know we preachers use this too often, but we're going to have a little Lord of the Rings moment here. Um, There's a scene in the books, the movies actually do a pretty decent job of portraying it, but it's when when the hobbit Frodo um, and his companions, they're on this quest to destroy the evil ring, you know the story, and they made their way to the city of Galathrim, and there they met the elf, the lady Galadriel. Right, And at one point, she took Frodo to the mirror of Galadriel, this magical basin of water. And she told Frodo that looking into this mirror would show, and this is what she said, would show things that were, things that are, and things that yet may be. So Frodo looked into the mirror, and at first he saw some very familiar scenes. But then Tolkien wrote this. Suddenly, the mirror went altogether dark. As dark as if a hole had opened in the world of sight. And Frodo looked into emptiness. In the black abyss, there appeared a single eye that slowly grew until it filled all, nearly all the mirror. 
The eye was rimmed with fire, but was itself glazed, yellow as a cat's watchful intent, and the black slit of its pupil opened on a pit, a window into nothing. And then we're told this, the eye began to rove, searching this way and that. And this is really the part that I wanted you to hear. And Frodo knew with certainty and horror that among the many things that it sought, he himself was one. You see, his eyes at this mirror were opened to see his terrible enemy, right? His real personal enemy, the enemy that was unseen but is always watching and searching and roving for him, right? An enemy behind and above and underneath the darkness in the world. And this is the first thing I want to leave you with that I think Paul is endeavoring to get across in these verses is is to ask you this question. Are you seeing? Are your eyes open? Are they open to your terrible enemy? Don't go looking around for paranormal stuff like exorcism, head spinning kind of stuff. Start looking at your money, sex, relationships, power, status, comfort, desire for achievement. Because the enemy lies above and beneath and around those kind of things. All right, let's move on um, to a variety of schemes. Uh, I I know this is an unusual topic for us to handle, and, and no doubt it's probably stretching us a little bit, but we need to consider the devil's variety of schemes here. Verse 12, he says, able to stand against the devil's schemes or, or strategies. However you translate that word, whether it's schemes or strategies, or I think some versions have methods, no matter what it is, it's plural. Okay? The same when it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes plural. And in order to understand the variety of his schemes, it's worth noting that Paul is referring to the devil. And the Greek word for devil is diabolos, which means liar or slanderer. To know his schemes, you need to understand that he is a liar and a slanderer. I mean, Jesus said in John 8 about the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And that should help us in understanding his schemes. Because we all know that good lies, if there's such a thing, good lies, they're never an outright fabrication. They're a twist, a slant, a distortion of the truth. This is what I want you to think about here. How the devil twists the truth and whispers his lies in a variety of ways. Um, English Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote an incredible book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices or Schemes. It is one of the most helpful, practical, spiritual books I've ever read. I can't commend it to you enough, even though the old English is, is a little bit difficult. But the book is basically organized like this. In it, he lists a multitude of Satan's lies. And then under each lie, he lists four to five remedies or scriptural truths to combat 
the lies, hence the title, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And I want to give you a few examples of these lies, but first I want you to hear something Brooks wrote in the opening of his book, okay? He wrote this, Whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. So, let's stop right there for a second. I got a little bit more to read you, but you see the nuance here. The complexity of life being held together in that quote. Because he's saying, yes, the devil is a real, terrible, personal enemy. But his lies are not spent on a blank, innocent canvas. The devil doesn't make a good person bad, in other words. What he's saying is he works to make a broken, sinful, flawed person worse. He stirs up and aggravates the evil that is already in your heart and in mine. And even beyond that, this is what Brooks is saying, he tailors his schemes to those sins you and I, as individuals, are uniquely prone to. So listen to a bit more of what Brooks wrote. Whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. If David is proud of his people, Satan will provoke him to number them, that he may be yet prouder. If Peter is slavishly fearful, Satan will put him upon the rebuking and denying of Christ to save his own skin. If Judas will be a traitor, Satan will quickly enter his heart, into his heart and make him sell his master for money, which some heathens would never have done. If Ananias will lie for advantage, Satan will fill his heart that he may lie with a witness to the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. If they be in prosperity, he will tempt them to deny God. If they be in adversity, he will tempt them to distrust God. If their conscience be tender, he will tempt to scrupulosity. If bold-spirited, he will tempt to presumption. If timorous to desperation, if flexible to inconstancy. Here's what I'm saying. To know our enemy's schemes, we also need to know ourselves and our own hearts. Because the devil isn't working with a blank canvas in my heart or yours. He loves to sail with the wind of our hearts. Now, now listen, it's helpful as you think about these things to, to categorize these schemes under two headings. The devil is working with lies of temptation and lies of accusation. Listen to just a a few that Brooks offers here. These are lies of temptation, a twisting of the truth. Scheme number one, he says, is to present the bait and hide the hook. In other words, showing you the pleasure and sweetness of sin, but hiding the bitter emptiness of it and the terrible slavery of it. Scheme number two, by causing Christians to compare themselves to others they think are worse. Yes, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I'm just a little proud, a little deceptive, a little lustful in comparison. Another scheme of comparison, getting you to compare one, life, one part of your life to another part. Look at all the good things I'm doing with my life. It's okay that I have a few vices. Everybody's allowed a few vices, right? On and on he goes, schemes of temptation. But here's the other heading. 
And I'll give you a few examples here. Satan also attacks with accusations. Brooks said one scheme here is to cause Christians to mind their sins more than their Savior. To so beat you down with shame and guilt that you don't ever look up to see the remedy of the cross. Another scheme, how about this? By, by working the soul to make false inferences from the cross actings of providence. A lot of old English there, but here's what he's saying. When it doesn't seem like your prayers are being answered, when your desires in this life are so frustrated, when you're experiencing more tears and suffering than smiles and hope in this world, to question at that moment whether God really loves you at all. The last one I'll give you, and he gives lots more, but he wrote, by reminding Christians of frequent relapses into sins they repented of and prayed against. In other words, again? Are you kidding me? Clearly you shouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, one who God loves. If you were really a Christian, you would be over that by now. It's just a taste of his book. But you see the schemes, the lies, the slants, the subtle but definite twisting of the truth. Do you know your enemy's schemes? But also do you know yourself? And are you aware of the variety of schemes the devil would use against you? How he'll tailor his schemes. How he'll sail with the wind of your heart. To entice you to what only leads to death. To rob you of the joy of the assurance of your salvation in Jesus. Don't be unaware of, the, of his variety of schemes. All right. Last point, a place to stand. And I'm not sure where you are as we head into this last point. Um, you might be confused or overwhelmed or bored. I don't know. You might be very aware of the schemes that you're most susceptible to. Um, or this might be creating new categories for you uh, as you think these things through. But no matter who you are, it's important that you see in this last point that Paul is telling us that there is a safe place for us to stand. Right out of the gate in verse 10, Paul wrote, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not in your own strength. Be strong in God's strength, he says. And then verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God to stand firm. He didn't say, go get your armor. He wrote, stand in God's armor. And you've got to see, even in these verses, Paul's confidence in the midst of telling us about our terrible enemy and all his devices and schemes. He's saying there's a safe place to stand. And it's not in your strength. It's in God's strength, and it's not in your armor. It's in God's armor. So what is God's armor that gives us a safe place to stand? We're going to talk about this more next week. But the armor is the gospel. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. The gospel and all its benefits that come to you in Jesus. Paul was saying you will stand against temptations. You will stand against Satan's accusations as you stand In the gospel, the good news of God's love for the broken, the good news of God's atoning sacrifice for sinners, as you stand in that, as you stand in the good news of total acceptance before God, based not on your works, 
but based on the work of Jesus. The good news of an identity that's received, not achieved. As, you, as that gospel, as that good news gets worked into your heart, Paul is saying, you will be able to stand against these temptations, against these accusations. It's standing in and upon the gospel that you grow in an assurance of God's love for you and his delight in you, not because of anything you've done or could ever do, but because of the finished work of Jesus. We're going to talk more about this gospel next week, but I want to end um, by having us think about these two gardens in the Bible and why the gospel is a safe place to stand. So, you know, the Bible begins with a garden, the Garden of Eden, right, described in Genesis. And there Satan, the father of lies, he showed up to twist and distort the truth, didn't he? God told Adam and Eve, here's this tree, obey me about this tree, and you will live. And life will flourish for you if you obey me about this tree. But Satan came with a whisper, with a slant, a twist, a lie, right? He came presenting the bait and hiding the hook. Look at the pleasure you could have. You will not surely die, right? And he came with a whisper to question God's goodness. Did God really say? He must not really love you. He must be holding out on you. God had said, obey me about this tree, and life will flourish, and you will live. But man took the fruit, right? plunged the world into sin, death, ruin, and misery. But here's the story of the Bible. Years later, there was another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that garden? I mean, it was a garden that was pregnant with temptation. You remember Jesus telling his disciples who were falling asleep on him. What he told them was, watch and pray that you may not enter into what? Into temptation. So intense was the struggle, the temptation that Jesus faced, all alone by himself. His sweat was like drops of blood in that garden. And you and I know why. Because he had received a command from his father to obey him about a tree. The cross. Jesus' father had said, obey me. Obey me about this tree and darkness itself will fall upon you. And you will be crushed. And the Bible tells us he did it. He obeyed his father about that tree. And he was crushed in your place and mine. He was crushed so we, could, we would never have to pay for our sins. Crushed so that the guilt and power of sin would be destroyed. He was crushed so we could be welcomed into his family as sons and daughters of the king. Jesus paid it all, the hymn goes. Before the throne I stand complete in him. Jesus and his completed work for you. That's what Paul is telling you. Paul is saying that is the only safe place to stand. And it's by working that good news deep into your heart that you stand complete in Jesus and what Jesus accomplished for you that you're able to battle against your enemies' temptations and accusations. Whatever temptation shows up, whatever that temptation is, you deal with that temptation that you need something other than God's love. 
to fill you up and to satisfy you. You deal with that temptation that God is holding out on you and keeping good things from you. You deal with that, that and every other temptation by standing in the gospel and being reminded that God held nothing back for you. Even when it meant his own son. You fight that temptation by standing in the gospel and being reminded that God gave himself to satisfy the hungers of your soul. And you battle against your enemy's accusations the same way. You battle by standing in the gospel. By standing in the gospel and being reminded that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son for you. You deal with those accusations by reminding yourself that the law's loud thunder against you has been silenced because Jesus satisfied all the demands of God's justice for you. And we're going to talk more about that next week, about how you appropriate this good news. But for now, we need a taste of this. We have a terrible enemy. Open your eyes, Paul says. He's got a variety of schemes to use against us. But in Jesus, Paul says, you have a safe place to stand. Another hymn writer put it this way. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him. Stand in him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Um, thank you for even the challenging and difficult places in your word, um, and especially those places that open our eyes to see the unseen world, uh, to see reality as you see it. And Father, we confess that we do have indeed a terrible enemy, and we confess that we have often given in to his temptations, we have often believed his accusations rather than believing your word. And Father, we pray that you would help us all to stand firm in the gospel. Reveal to us with eyes of faith the author and perfecter of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.